You are listening to a Crosspoint Peachtree City podcast. For more information, please visit our website at www.crosspointptc.com. One of the pastors here at Cross Point, primarily responsible for leading the song of the church on Sunday morning. It's what um, Alex and Maddie did for us just now. It's sweet to be in the congregation with you all, worshiping in song. I don't remember the last time I did that. In fact, it's probably been about three years since last I preached, and since then a lot has happened here at Cross Point. I've become an elder here. Um, if I'm honest, part of me feels a little intimidated by this, um, like when I was just James, a worship leader, maybe an extra level of grace was extended to me, like, oh, look, it's the guy that plays guitars, trying to preach, that's cute, kind of thing. Um, might seem like the title should uh, come with an upgrade of sorts, um, like some newfound eloquence or, or erudition or something, but um, alas, this is not the case, which is probably a good thing, uh, as I'm sure I would come to trust in that, more than the guidance of the Holy Spirit. So this morning, I'm happy to boast in my weaknesses and rely on the strength of Christ who sustains me. Um, I really, I am excited to be preaching this morning. I'm excited that Jamie, the pastor who is up here most weeks unpacking God's Word, is able to be on vacation with his family, and, uh, and I feel honored that he trusts me to faithfully exegete the Scriptures by God's grace. That's what I hope to do. So um, for those of you joining us for the first time, we've been working through the book of Colossians. It's a short book. Uh, especially coming out of Luke's gospel account, which we were in for quite a while, for those of you who were with us through that. This one, however, is only four chapters long, so we should be wrapping up sometime around spring of 2024. Um, just kidding. This is one of my little goofabouts, a little spoof. Anyways, we'll, we'll take us to the end of November. Um, but we do, as many of you probably know, love to excavate God's Word, to dig into a passage and mine it for all the riches that it's worth. Uh, and with Colossians, it feels like we've hit the mother load. Um, these passages are jam-packed. And even after sitting with the one that we're about to dive into in a moment, for the past week or so, I feel as though I've just scratched the surface. To briefly summarize, in case you've missed the past few weeks, uh, Paul is writing this letter from prison to the church in Colossae, a church he did not plant correctly, nor has he ever been to, but has learned about from his brother in Christ, Epaphras. Epaphras has shared with Paul all the awesome things that uh, are going on in the church of Colossians, all that God is doing in and through them as well as some of the things infiltrating the church from within or without, or perhaps both, what Paul refers to, broadly speaking, as hollow and deceptive philosophy, and what a lot of commentators like to refer to as bum, 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 the Colossian heresy. Sounds very sinister. But um, they're not entirely clear on what exactly this is, but from the best they can tell, it's a syncretistic combination of Gnosticism and Jewish legalism with some cultic practices thrown in there for good measure. Suffice it to say, there was a Jesus plus gospel being proclaimed. The gospel of Christ was all well and good, but there was something more that the church was missing out on, some elite level of Christianity that was being touted that would 
uh, bring people to the next level. So this is the, the underlying context of Paul's letter, written on behalf of Epaphras. And though the letter is meant, I think, to be corrective in nature, Paul takes a less stern approach with the church in Colossae than he does with some of his other letters to the churches, preferring instead to accentuate the positive in this instance. And he does so by affirming the gospel that they have received through Epaphras as true and complete, lacking nothing, and by unabashedly exalting the person and work of Christ, the preeminent king, firstborn over all creation, which was created by him, for him, and which he also sustains, firstborn from the dead, establishing a new covenant, reconciling us to the Father, securing our salvation, whereby we are adopted into the family of God, recipients of a real lasting hope stored up for us in heaven. This is the Jesus that Paul wanted the Colossians to see, and this is the Jesus that I think we're meant to see now. With that being said, I'm going to invite you guys to turn to Colossians 2, 6 through 15. That's where we're going to be this morning. Uh, there should be a Bible in one of the seats in front of you. Um, and there's also going to be a, uh, verses on the screen behind us. Let's, uh, let's just dive in. You guys ready? Beginning in verse 6, <clears throat> Paul writes, So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith that you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. So then, meaning all the things that Paul just laid out for us in the previous chapter, Christ, the preeminent reigning king and merciful savior, because of who he is and what he has done, continue to live your lives in him. Christ is your identity. That and that alone informs how you live. He's saying, this is who you are now, and he employs uh, this horticultural metaphor to drive home the point. Um, I'm going to be reading from the ESV mostly, but for these particular set of verses, I want to reference the NASB translation here because I, I like the way it's worded better. It says, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him having been firmly rooted and now being built up and established. I think those distinctions are important. If we are in Christ as Christians, we have been planted in the nutrient-rich soil of the gospel. That's not something that we did. That's something that God has done through Christ. And trees planted in this soil grow strong and healthy. Trees planted in this soil bear fruit. We are now, present tense, being built up and established in him. This word established, Sam Storms notes in his commentary, was often used to describe the process of guaranteeing legal contracts. I I like what he says here. He says, God has bound himself to me. He formally pledged himself to my growth and grace in his son. He has sealed the document of ownership. I am his and he is mine. Um, I don't know about you guys, but I need to be reminded of that often. At any given point throughout the day, I require an identity check, whether I'm seeking my identity and the way my kids are behaving or uh, my performance or what's in my bank account or so on and so forth. We all seek our identity in things other than Christ, and I need to remember that that's where my identity is rooted, that I have been firmly planted in him. Um, I want to share this with you. Um, I'll probably regret it in the aftermath, but um, I'm going to do it anyway. I wrote this, uh, I don't know, poem, I guess. Uh, It was a while back. I don't share it with you because I think it's great, or even because I'm absolutely certain it's a poem, Uh, but it's my attempt uh, to put into words this fight to remember who I am in Christ. So I wrote it. I was at um, Denver International Airport, and uh, 
I always find airports to be really interesting because they're points of uh, intersection and cross-pollination between all walks of life, as well as just great places to observe people. And because they're transient rest stops, airports, everyone is essentially a stranger, so they can be anyone. Um, I think that's enough context. So I'm, I'm, without any further ado, this is uh, You Can Be Anyone at Denver International Airport. Now here it goes. <clears throat> Who are you right now? Are you that guy, the one with the bagel and the wraparound sunglasses, two iced coffees, flip-flops, and dangling earbuds? What about her? It could be her with the dog is my co-pilot sticker on your MacBook, tattoo of miscellaneous magic sprawling across your right shoulder, no telling where it ends. Could go on forever. Who are you? Did you move here for the lax marijuana laws? Are you meeting up with old frat buddies for a mountain bike excursion? Are you checking sports stats on your phone? Are you on business just passing through, hoping to hook up with someone else on business just passing through, bubbling mimosas and conversation at the tapas bar? Who are you? Are you funny? Are you pensive? Are you gay, undecided? Are you a father of three with a wife of seven years, part-time warehouse worker, part-time worship leader at a church plant of a hundred or so? Who are you? Enslaved and indebted, who paid your ransom? Dead and condemned, who bled in your place, shapeless and void, who sculpts and perfects you, confused and uncertain, who knows who you are, whose are you? If that resonates with you at all, I'm glad. If it doesn't, I'm sorry. There's always a, a risk of sharing something personal. My hope is to put flesh on some of these terms that at times can become uh, sort of glibly uttered and sound more like Christianese and something we actually believe deep down. Uh, the point that I was trying to make, if you prefer a more direct approach, is that I do not belong to myself, as it says in 1 Corinthians 6.19, for I was bought with a high price. That's where my identity is. Back to the passage at hand, Paul's words here were meant to be an encouragement to the Colossian church, and they're meant to be an encouragement to us now. When we feel stagnant or when we feel lost, when we feel as though we are wilting beneath the pressures of life or our own bad decisions even, when we forget who we are, we need to remember that our roots have been firmly planted in the gospel. And, as it says in Philippians 1.6, be confident in this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And this should always produce in us a profound gratitude, an overflowing of thankfulness, as Paul says, because that is the appropriate response. But also for those times when things are going well, and we see the fruit of the Spirit in our lives, when we are noticeably growing in the knowledge and understanding of who God is, lest we become haughty or conceited, we thank God for the growth that only he can provide. I could do a whole sermon on this, I think, but we really must move on. We're going to continue, go to verses 8 through 10, where Paul writes, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world, rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. Um, so here is the Colossian heresy, which we've been referencing throughout the series, and which is now being talked about more explicitly, this uh, wrong thinking that is being indulged in the church in Colossae, and which Paul aims to call out and correct. And he uses some strong evocative language here to do it, uh, the word uh, for captive is unusual, uh, Dick Lucas notes in his commentary, because 
It speaks of the slave raider carrying off his victim, body and soul. And Paul calls out, stranger danger, be on alert for this sort of thing. These hollow and deceptive philosophies are not to be entertained under any circumstances because they depend on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of the world rather than on Christ. What he means by that, human traditions, as Paul uses it, you know, meaning earthly in origin, concocted in the minds of men, what have you, and the elemental spiritual forces of the world as those demonic powers and principalities which work tirelessly to undermine the true gospel. One could argue that any gospel that proclaims uh, to offer something greater than the sufficiency of Christ is demonic in nature. And Paul wants us to feel the gravity of this, uh, lest we dismiss it as being not that big of a deal. But what I love about his argument here is how he doesn't rely on scare tactics to make his point, like a lot of other preachers I've heard. But once again, he seizes the opportunity to make much of Christ. Christ in whom all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. We look back just a few verses at Colossians 1.15 where he says, He is the image of the invisible God. Nothing less than the embodiment of all truth and power and glory. All treasures of wisdom and knowledge, as it says in Colossians 2.3, the head of every power and authority. And in the outpouring of his fullness, we ourselves are filled. This fullness that Paul writes about is the same word he uses in Philippians 1.11 when he says, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. And in Romans 15.13, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace. And Romans 15.14, full of goodness and filled with all knowledge. And finally, Ephesians 5.18, as we are filled with the Spirit of God himself. Paul refutes the false teachers in the Colossian church by once more showing us that we have every good thing in Christ, who in his fullness generously lavishes us with these gifts. There's not room for anything else. Christ fills the void completely, and it's only when we try to fill it with something other than him that we end up feeling hollow and empty as the philosophies themselves. Moving on to verses 11 through 12, um, and Paul makes sort of a, a seemingly abrupt shift here, but I think it ultimately falls under the banner of, of finding our identity in Christ rooted in him. Um, but uh, here's what he says. In him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, and which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. Um, all right, where do we begin? Paul's thought process here is so nuanced uh, and so complex that he connects all these different ideas between Old Testament illusions and New Covenant theology, and he does so effortlessly, um, so I'll try to do it justice. But uh, first of all, I love that Paul uh, employs this circumcision metaphor as a basis for his argument. And the picture that he paints here conjures something pretty graphic and gruesome, if you think about it, and uh, I believe that is intentionally uh, what Paul is going after. I've said this before, but I often wonder, if the Bible were written today, would it be rejected not only by the non-Christian community, but by Christians as well, on the grounds of being politically incorrect? And we've sanitized some of these things, or afraid to touch certain things, but Paul does not shy away from it, and he earnestly embraces the comparison, and so does God, because it's in his word, so if you have a 
problem with it, you take it up with him. But we're going to continue. Um, I want to read, we have to go all the way back to Genesis 17 to kind of set this up. Uh, Genesis 17, and we're going to begin in verse 9. And I need to drink of water because it's a long passage. So, Also, um, just so you know, I'm, you guys can keep count, but I'm going to try to break the record for most times circumcision has been said in a sermon. So I think we can do it. Doesn't matter, but you guys can laugh. It's okay. All right. <clears throat> And God said to Abraham, verse 9, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring, and you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you, your offspring, and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house, or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who was born in your house and he who was bought with your money, that surely shall be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from this people. He has broken my covenant. And then we'll fast forward just a few verses to verse 23. Where it says, Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those born in his house or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day as God had said to him. I wonder what that conversation was like. <laughs> Picture Abraham gathering of people around, servants. I've got some great news, guys. going to be exciting changes going on here. It might take some getting used to, but it's going to be worth it in the long run. Picture all the servants looking at each other, some animated chatter amongst them. There's an extra day off, I can raise and pay. <clears throat> uh uh, it's something else. <clears throat> so, anyway, this is the establishment of the covenant between God and Abraham. And all of Abraham's offspring in the Old Testament. The distinguishing mark of circumcision is a sign and symbol of God's chosen people being set apart from the pagan nations. It was a reminder not just of who they were, but of whose they were. Their sense of identity, promise, and hope as defined by their covenant relationship with Yahweh. So Paul here, going back to the verses, is making a distinction between the physical act of circumcision in the Old Testament and the spiritual act of circumcision in the New. The circumcision of the heart, so to speak, is not performed by human hands, meaning it is something that only God can do. Your whole self, Paul continues, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. Here's where uh, Paul's metaphor becomes particularly vivid as he contrasts the small piece of flesh, i.e. the foreskin, removed during physical circumcision with all of us. Who we are in the flesh, shrouded in darkness, hostile to God, dead in our trespasses. That old self, Paul goes on to write in verse 12, has been buried with Christ, and we are now new creations, to use the language of 2 Corinthians 5.17, having been raised with Christ just as he raised from the dead, just as he was raised from the dead by the power of God. Uh, as Christians, we proclaim this act in, in baptism. In doing so, we make a public declaration that our hearts have been regenerated, i.e. circumcised, now indwelt by the Holy Spirit. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, Galatians 2.20 Similar to the Abrahamic covenant, I am defined in these terms. That is not by my sin or my shame or my brokenness, but by these, this intimate relationship with God in Christ. 
which is what it goes on to say in verse 13. When you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of your legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. I love those verses. Our infinitely holy God looks upon us and sees not our sin, but the spotless righteousness of Christ. He looks upon us and sees not the debt we've incurred for our transgressions, but Christ's perfect obedience. I think we all, probably everyone in this room, understands what it's like to be in some sort of financial debt. Uh, Maybe a couple of you are living debt-free, and in that case, God bless you for that. But I venture to say that, that most of us have some form of outstanding debt, be it a mortgage or student loans, and even if it may take 15, 30 years to pay off some of these things, that's still nothing compared to the debt that we owe God. I love this illustration that Sam Storms uses in his commentary. You really feel the weight of eternity and this indebtedness as he writes this. He says, to be burdened with a debt from which you will never be set free is simply too much to comprehend. To owe a debt that you know you can never pay off is psychologically devastating. Extend that indebtedness and penalty it incurs into eternity, and it becomes horrific beyond words. What our sin deserves is no less than death and eternal separation from God, but in his mercy and grace we have life and the promise of an eternal dwelling place with our Heavenly Father. It is not that the debt never existed, that's too easy. God did not and cannot ignore it. It is that the debt has been settled. Nailed to the cross like the Roman titulus, the sign bearing the written accusation against a condemned criminal, saying, now paid in full by the Son. It is why we sing these words. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part but the whole, has been nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. And because of this glorious reality that we live in, that of a sin-conquering, death-conquering Savior, as it says in verse 15, Christ has disarmed the powers and authorities. He has made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Because of Christ's victory on the cross, Satan and his army have been disarmed and rendered essentially powerless, though Satan is a roaring lion, this lion has been defanged in a sense. My understanding is that the picture Paul paints here is one of a Roman procession where following a successful military campaign, the captives of the defeated army would be paraded through the streets for all to see, bound in chains. It must have been humiliating for them, but this is what our Savior has done for us. And the amazing thing is Christ's victory is our victory too, 1 Corinthians 15, 57. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Christ Jesus. We are more than conquerors in him. I hope that you are experiencing fullness in light of all of that. Um, I pray that I've done this passage some modicum of justice, but I, I would encourage you to sit with it and soak in it throughout the week. I'm certain you'll receive insights and personal convictions that I didn't uncover here. It is that rich and that mind-blowing. With that being said, we're just going to move into a time of communion and worship through song. Um, 
If you're a Christian, our communion, this meal is for you. We take the bread representing Jesus' broken body and dip it in the cup representing his blood shed for us on the cross. There are communion stations at the front at either of these tables and in the back as well. You'll find a gluten-free communion option. Um, and there'll be a time of reflection as Alex and Maddie come back up here. He's going to play a little background music. But that space is meant uh, just to allow you guys time to sit with this passage and the overwhelming grace of God in Jesus Christ. Our living hope is we are united in death and resurrection with the one who paid it all. We're also going to worship um, this God with our voices raised, singing to him who is worthy of all our praise. And as we do, I pray that our hearts would overflow with gratitude for a God who has claimed us as his own. I'll repeat it again. We are his and he is ours. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions about this message, visit us at crosspointptc.com. There you can contact us, find further resources, and directions to our gatherings. That's C-R-O-S-S-P-O-I-N-T-E-P-T-C.com.